Welcome to Straight Talk Live. My name is Rick Snyder. I'm one of the co-hosts of this fantastic not-for-profit show that's really focusing on uh, personal transformation, uh, digital transformation, and social impact. And really, what are the conversations we need to be having in a post-COVID context? And so I am joined by my co-host, Alf Maholtra. Alf, will you please uh, share a little bit about you and what has you excited about today's show? Yeah, cool. I thought you called me Alf there for a second. Seriously? Um, it's really early in the morning here in San Diego. You've been working far too hard. It's you've been true. working it's far true. too hard. So uh, listen, guys, welcome. Thank you for joining us for yet another incredible show. I'm Af Malhotra, uh, the co-founder of Growth Enabler and the co-host here at StraightTalk.Live. Uh, this again, uh, many most of the shows are special to me. This one is a particularly special one for me because the guest we have today um, happened to spend an hour with me talking talking through my um, experience of remaking myself in the wake of loss and the wake of illness. And um, so it's a special one for me. So I'm trying not to get too intense, but um, I, you know, Rick, over to you. Let's crack on and let's let's introduce our guest. Okay, happy to do that. And so Jody Halpern, a professor at UC Berkeley and also a, a good friend of mine as well. And uh, Jody, I've always been um, really um, just inspired by our conversations every time we've met. And so I'm excited to share the world with you and the world, you with the world today. And so for those who don't know you, who might be hearing you or your work for the first time, could you share a little bit about your background? Yes, thank you so much, Rick and Af. And it is true, everyone, that we, the three of us have had such soulful conversations. This is a rare opportunity for me to be on the show. Um, so I, I was a, a medical student a long time ago when um, doctors were taught to be emotionally detached from their patients, that to be effective healers, they had to suppress their own emotions. And it really um, disturbed me during medical school. I would see patients in distress or families that were suffering and doctors respond professionally but neutrally and how hard that was for patients. So I became very interested in whether clinical empathy could be shown to really have, make a difference, not only in how much people liked their doctors, but in how effective medical care was. <clears throat> Excuse me. So I started studying many, many years ago the power of clinical empathy for healing. And I've been part of a movement now that's been really amazing with many people doing research, um, several of whom have been my students, that, uh, but many people around the world showing that empathy is determinative of effective care in several ways. And I can tell you more about that, but it really changed my thinking. Mm. And then as I got older and, and uh, had been writing about patients and families dealing with serious losses, and then of course experienced my own and my friends, and of course now with COVID so many mm -hmm. people's, I started thinking about writing not from the point of view of the doctor or the nurse, but the point of view of the patient or the family. Mm -hmm. What's it really like to go through these really serious losses? Why is empathy so important during those experiences? And um, so I spent 10 years now listening to people tell me about that. That's fantastic. And so one, one thing that I think the audience doesn't know yet is you have an up and coming book um, that's called Remaking the Self in the Wake of Loss. And this is the first time I believe you've shared about this book publicly. So this is a very special moment for all of us. And mm -hmm. can you give us just some of the key threads or takeaways that do talk about how do you remake yourself uh, in, the, in the wake of loss, which is something that's so relevant to everyone in our conversation right now with COVID, with jobs, with health, 
there's so many versions of loss that we're all facing and dealing with. So what, were, what are some takeaways that you think would be really helpful for us to hear in your research? I'll start with the personal, because I really study the psychological and the personal, but there's lots we could say about as, as a society, ultimately, what can we do? I know that's part mm. of your show, so we'll get to that too. Mm. But, um, but the personal, which is my area, um, what I've learned from listening to so many people is that there's phases, basically. So, and it is relevant for COVID because I think that the fact that we're about the six month point now is almost the transition that I've seen with people between coping and really changing as a person. So, you know, for the first six months or a year, and often for the first few years with a serious illness, especially if you have to be go through treatment and hospitalizations, you're in the strenuous coping phase and you're just trying to keep yourself from, in your mind, falling apart and you're trying to keep your family together. Often people, especially, I've, I've, I've chosen to interview a lot of people who are, are pretty, um, in some sense, either driven or, you know, it might be that they want to be a super parent, like an incredible mom, or it might be that they have a, a major career outside the home, but people who have high expectations of themselves. And during a phase where illness kind of gets in the way of that, they can't do things the same old way. It's really devastating. People just worry that their whole sense of self has been based on that and mm. they feel that their family and sometimes of course financially or just in terms of childcare, little kids people do depend on them so that's a coping phase of just getting by and that's how i see the first six months of covid frankly mm. but then that there's a period of time after which you kind of can't keep doing that strenuous coping mm. and people literally do experience themselves as quote falling apart but what that really is what the fascinating thing to me that I've never seen written about quite this way is that that's actually, it's horrible to go through, but it's actually when real growth happens and real change of the self that can be really amazing because you have to take care of yourself at that point. And so people have to, for the first time in their lives, many people accept their vulnerability. Mm -hmm. And that might mean staying in bed for a while or really saying no to things that they feel that they need to do or seeking help even with childcare or with work and reaching out when they haven't been used to depending on people. And I can tell stories about people doing this if you want sometime during the show. But that vulnerability of either having to nurture yourself and rest or reach out that way. And then usually there's a lot of grieving that takes place. And that can be really hard for people that aren't used to feeling sad. Or, or So there's lots more to say. I, I, but anyway, what happens out of that is that for some people, that stirs up not just self-nurturance, which in and of itself, we've heard about self-compassion and accepting vulnerability from lots of writers. And that's very good. But the second part of it, which is what my work is about, is some people then become curious about themselves. Why did I feel like I had to be in charge of everything? Why do I have to feel like I have to do everything alone? Mm. And that, I call that empathic curiosity. That can be the beginning of incredible transformation for people. Mm. So can we, can we um, Jody, thank you for that. <clears throat> Going back to the personal story, um, I just wanna flip, flip, flip the coin for a moment. Um, and this relates to, you know, people who um, who sort of um, turn the communication off. So you talked about grieving, you talked about not accepting, and, and you talked about, I think you talked about acceptance or accepting vulnerability. 
But what, what what happens? I mean, do you see situations, and with COVID, it's 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 also going to to go, you know spring up at some point where people are struggling to cope. Um, I mean, there's one side of this which is about the as you call it, empathic curiosity, but there there must be another side to this, the sort of yin and yang or the other side of the coin. What's the other side of the coin? Um, and and the, the study that you're doing, what has sort of I'm trying to work out what what has compelled you to study this. Um, what's what's the why? You know why does this need to be discovered, and 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 why is this work more um, differentiated or special versus the other work that that's out there? Um, I'm just trying to get my head around this. So two parts. One is what's the dark side of this? Uh, what happens when someone shuts everything down? And I guess what's the bright side of this, which is I, I presume one part of what you're researching as well. A beautiful question. Um, I'm trying to think about how to frame what I'm, uh, what what instigated this work, without in a way putting down what instigated this work because what instigated mm. this work was progress in and of itself, which was this movement towards a lot of self-help books about ten years ago that came out about self-compassion, mm. about self-acceptance, about vulnerability. Very famous writers about those things. But they came out in a context often, um, some of the titles of those books were Bouncing Back, Bouncing Forward, they, You're Stronger Than You Think. And mm. those books mm. basically almost made it sound like in addition, if you're, if you're ill and you have to parent or do a job or you're in COVID and you have to take care of things, almost that you should also make sure you're meditating a certain amount of hours a day, you're, you know, you're treating yourself well, whatever. And I just saw a lot of people feeling just pressure to consciously act or cultivate compassion or cultivate meditative centering as mm. another driven thing. And another self-blame, especially I've seen this with people with cancer that I've worked with quite a bit, that if their cancer recurred, they blame themselves for not thinking positively enough. Mm -hmm. And um, so the positive, I say that my book is in a way response to the positive psychology movement, but yeah. the truth is there's incredibly important research in that movement. And I work with a lot of those scholars. So that movement was a movement against some other things 10 years before that. So there's a lot of progress. That's how science goes forward, by the way. I mean, that's what mm. our government doesn't understand is you always get some things wrong, including obviously what I'm doing is getting some things wrong and someone will critique it 10 years from now. But there was such an emphasis on conscious positive psychology and I'm a psychodynamic mm. psychiatrist. And the, 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 nut, the nut discovery of my work is that you can consciously do all those things, try to be good to yourself, try to cope, try to understand yourself, try to take care of yourself, try to be accepting. But really you can't get very far. And people that I've worked with, I'll tell you a couple of stories, but mm. you can't get far if your unconscious is really self-critical. Mm -hmm. And so the, the, the key to unconscious change, which is really what has to happen, is, the, is, is realizing that your imagination is your worst enemy your unconscious imagination, emotional imagination, is your worst enemy, but it can also be your best friend. So we all have unconscious fantasies that we formed as babies or little mm. children to cope mm. with our early childhood. And we all have unconscious fantasies of what, who we are and how we need to be. Um, so for example, one of the people that I've, is in the book um, is a woman who I've, I've kept, I tend to keep in touch with the people I interview afterwards. So I've, I watched them over 10 years mm -hmm. now. So mm -hmm. when she was in her early thirties, 
this is a very dynamic woman, an international leader, an athlete. So again, I have a lot of people like that in my book that just have this incredible energy. And she had uh, was diagnosed with advanced ovarian cancer, which is sadly, and I don't want to scare any readers, but the stage she was at, which was an advanced stage three, is often people see it almost as a death sentence. Mm. And um, she was told that there was some experimental treatment that was very, very, very aggressive. It would cause a lot of effects on her body, but it was sort of her only chance. And she said, let's go for it. And she, I mean, literally like that, that was how she did things. And she had this treatment and now it's, it's 15 years. I met her five years after. I only interviewed people at least two years after because I wanted to see how illness affected them over time. And now I've known her and been friends with her for 10 years. Um, she basically has had devastating side effects. She survived. She's over her cancer. She's a, 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 she'd be seen as a miracle, but it caused so much change in her endocrine system, her, mm. her body, her physiology, that she has a kind of um, exhaustion, which makes it hard to be awake and functioning mentally and physically more mm. than three, four hours a day, a few days mm. a week. Mm. And so for years, she was um, furious at herself, not being able to do more. And it took a long time to diagnose. One of the things has to do with her blood pressure and how it can't adapt when she's sitting mm -hmm. up or standing up. One thing has to do with seizures you can have that are silent seizures, but you can't, you can't work, your brain can't work during those things. It's taken a long time to figure out what, what, what the causes of all that were from the treatments. Mm. But during that whole period, Imagine being a dynamic person who can't get anything done, who can't even work, who can't mm -hmm. have a family, do the things she wanted to do. And um, she just went through such despair and angered herself. And then people told her to join self-help groups for survivors with cancer. And she went to breast cancer survivor groups because that was where she's, her women friends were going. And most of the women in those group were, were, were doing marathons and doing these things. And they kept saying to her, you know, you can do it. You can do it. And mm -hmm. she felt really alienated. Yeah. Um, and what happened is she had a friend with alcoholism and she wound up going to a 12-step program mm. um, at, at, to deal with codependency. And she learned, as you do in codependency with alcoholism, that you have a grandiose idea that you can save someone from something that you have no control over. Mm. And she started to realize how much she couldn't believe that there was nothing she could do, just nothing she could mm. do to get rid of these problems. And she saw herself and her imagination as even a bigger problem than the illness itself. And that she was always boxing with God, trying to get rid of this terrible affliction. And she basically started to realize that it was that conviction that was unconscious that was driving her life. And she went through a tremendous grieving process. And, and coming out of that, which was many years ago, she she accepts her life truly one day at a time and has been able to write a, an incredibly funny column and i think it'll lead to a book but also have relationships with people where they understand that she may or may not i, I you know she may have to cancel mm -hmm. um she bakes <laughs> right now for covid to raise money for the food bank she has beautiful deep relationships and she uses her incredible skills as a writer but she really understands that there's nothing she can do to have more good hours in her day, but mm. she can make the hours really deeply meaningful. Mm. But it's a whole different attitude about herself. <clears throat> mm -hmm. So she had to go through a deep transformation in her fantasies about herself. Mm -hmm. mm. You know, a lot in my book also, I talk a lot about the inner critic and how to work with the inner critic. How do you listen to the voice of your intuition versus the voice of your critic? 
because those are two very different voices. And one of them, I don't want to go on that journey so much for very long, right? And so one of my questions to you is, in my background in psychology as well, one of the things that <clears throat> I, we learned early on, <clears throat> excuse me, and then I got to practice a lot as well, is this idea that almost all trauma and loss happens in relationship. And therefore, the cure is also true, that most healing happens in relationship, right? Because it's when we're isolated the most is when we suffer, when we keep it to ourselves, when mm -hmm. we're in denial with ourselves, when we're disconnected from ourselves, um, or we just are afraid to share our story with someone else that can help us or care about us. That's when we're really exacerbating our suffering. Mm. So my question to you is around uh, this thread around healing through relationship and what are you finding in your research is the best way for people to bounce back when they have trauma, when they have loss, not just to get back to status quo, but to actually, you know, remake themselves in a way that's leaping forward. Um, the only thing I, I love what you said, I agree about relationships. Mm -hmm. I will say that I don't, part of my work is rejecting terms like bounce back and leaping forward because that's, that's a big part of the, the psyche we have as Americans. It is interesting if you go to Europe, like one of my friends is an Italian anthropologist and she, those, no one in Europe would ever use those terms. I mean, Af can tell <laughs> us about the UK, mm. but it's a very American thing. Mm -hmm. And it's important with COVID mm. because um, we, we have to have a language that's not mm. quite as, um, as strenuous muscular autonomy oriented mm. for the very reasons you just said, Rick, that mm. the depth of your work of showing how relational and mm -hmm. it is. I love that depth. Mm -hmm. But anyway, mm -hmm. um, well, I'll, I'll give you an, another story or example, because one thing is, I think you're right. I think relational mm -hmm. healing even can be, that's what happens in psychotherapy too. Mm -hmm. You know, the mm -hmm. therapist, it's the relationship. It's not that the therapist suddenly says something that gives you insight. It's the relationship. Yeah. But mm -hmm. I like to tell this story because Actually, I won't change the camera around, but I'm looking at my dog who is my savior during COVID. I'm so, I get uh, so much love being with my animal. Mm -hmm. And um, I think for a lot of people during COVID, they may be, you know, 40, a lot of people live alone and mm -hmm. have been socially isolated during COVID. And I think I like to tell this story about a relationship with an animal mm -hmm. because there's all kinds of relationships that can help people remake themselves. Mm -hmm. um, but this is a woman who, again, was a very high powered in her, in her energy, very physically active, had been an athlete in college and in her forties had her own business, which is hard to have a successful own business as a, as a craftswoman doing some really cool stuff. And she had a, a partner. She, she was in um, a marriage with another woman who was um, really, they had a really good relationship, but they didn't tend to be very vulnerable in certain ways that she had never realized. This is the difference between conscious and mm -hmm. unconscious. Like mm -hmm. you said, the inner mm -hmm. critic that's unconscious. Mm -hmm. So, and part of this woman, I'll call her Karen, cause I change everyone's names to protect them. She, um, part of her way of coping with life stresses was to be very physically active. So we live in the, the Bay area. So she, we have a beautiful park here, Tilton park. She'd go on long hikes by herself and she'd do rigorous bike rides, but she had, um, uh, juvenile diabetes from childhood and in her childhood that's type 1 diabetes that's the kind of diabetes where it, it means that you can suddenly have a huge drop in your blood sugar mm -hmm. and she usually get that more as you get older um, but when she was younger um, her parents were not very involved with her she talks about taking care of herself by herself as a child which 
parents will know if they have a child with this. It's, it's hard to imagine not being very involved with your child because there are risks to children, very serious ones. Mm -hmm. So that showed me a lot that she'd been very stoic. She'd had to live with a lot of risks and a lot of fears probably as a child by herself. That was probably why she never told people when she wasn't feeling well or she was vulnerable, even her partner really. Mm -hmm. But then when she was in her 40s, suddenly her blood sugar would start to drop. This happens. And, and she would suddenly drop to like 25, which you can totally have a seizure and, and die. <clears throat> and her partner would find her on the floor confused and give her orange juice, but there was a real risk to her life. Mm -hmm. And so it wasn't safe for her to be alone, going on hikes, going on bike rides and doing everything, but she didn't know what to do. What she wound up doing, which was really creative, and I'm trying to make the story shorter, is that she wound up finding out that there are, are um, support dogs. There are um, dogs, just like we have dogs for the blind. There are these amazing dogs that are trained to be with someone with diabetes because they can smell when your blood sugar drops. Wow. These dogs are amazing. I love these dogs. And so she trained with a dog, um, did all the training, and, and got this dog who was named Billy, like Billy Holiday, the singer. And um, she became so close to this dog. This dog went with her everywhere and you know, would, would basically um, bark at her when her blood sugar was dropping. Wow. And she would take a protein bar or take something and then the dog would stop barking when her blood sugar went back up it's it's kind of, and i've seen it it's amazing wow. and so that became so important to her and this dog and then the dog got cancer the oh, wow. dog got a dog it's a they're, they're like labs they can get cancers mm -hmm. and um that was the so even the, all that time she was never really different unconsciously mm -hmm. but when the dog became critically ill she went through that deep falling apart vulnerability phase where she couldn't just not depend on other people. And so she suddenly had reached out to everyone in this. She just didn't know what to do, who could find help, a way to help treat this dog's cancer, mm -hmm. find ways to help take care of the dog. Mm -hmm. And she got a lot of support around the dog and the dog mm -hmm. survived, Billy survived. But that was a transformative period because she couldn't stop essentially grieving mm -hmm. and, and needing other people's help. Mm -hmm. And so after that, her life is radically different. She mm -hmm. spends a lot of her time volunteering at a center for families of children with cancer, working with the families and helping them with their children communicate and hear how scared their children are and the parents learn to listen to their children which is of course repairing her childhood where her parents weren't there with able to be there for her with her diabetes and she's very relational now mm -hmm. she's she spends her days being with other people in these very emotionally deep ways even though she had been a loner before mm. Mm. Wow, what a story! We had to, we had a comment coming in uh, when you said, "Sorry, they're long stories." I think that people are enjoying the stories, and they think this. You know, I think the comment was, "Please um, elaborate. Please keep elaborating," because I think to be able to understand something like this, we have to be able to understand the context and the um, that sort of thread that you're drawing is and you're depicting with these events is very important. Then to relate back to how someone may be experiencing trauma or loss themselves or has experienced that in the past. So please continue with that, that detail because it's important. Um, that quality is important. Um, I had one question. Sorry, Rick, were you going to ask a question? Go for it. <clears throat> I had a question about, um, 
um, that, that relates to so going back to empathy and uh, which which is of course a huge area of focus for you so um, firstly it, would, it might sound very basic for you to do this but I think could could you describe what you mean by empathy um, and because I think it's been um, it's been juggled around quite a lot over the last couple of years and a little bit like the terms uh, you know when you use when you speak in English there's so many languages out there but in English we have all of these very um, sort of uh, um, uh, you know supportive and um, positive words like you know bouncing back making it happen and all those good things we don't use those words in Europe as often we're a little bit more timid and we say perhaps <laughs> or interesting or um, somewhat you know or not bad you know that's the sort of how are you feeling not bad that means I'm feeling good. And so we're, we, we, we are at a different a level. More, a little more understated. Yeah, a little bit, uh, yeah, that's saying it politely. So, so could you, a, a, define what you mean by empathy for the audience and, and then following on from that, um, again, a very, very basic question. Can one develop it or are we gifted with it at a young age and then we decide to lose it or uh, what have you found? I mean, what is because empathy is is everywhere. Leadership, authentic leadership. It's in business. It's in politics. Uh, people are talking about it all over the place. Uh, I'm not sure if we all have it, and maybe we do, but we don't know how to turn it on. A little bit like uh, my friend Rick talked about intuition a while ago. So, could you just touch on that for a moment, and then I would love to take another path from there on. Yes, thank you for that question, because actually to this day, even in the field of where people study it, which has been my whole career, people no. disagree about definitions. Mm -hmm. So this is not to say this is the only definition. Mm -hmm. And I have specific way of thinking about empathy because my, my research has always been on what is therapeutic empathy? because I was studying doctors and nurses and psychotherapists and transformative experiences. And now in this book, Remaking the Self, I'm studying self-empathy that's transformative. So this is different than maybe the kind of empathy. The term empathy was first defined in the 19th century, Anfalung in German, to mean appreciating the feelings in a piece of music and aesthetics. Feel what you feel when you listen to a concert or look at a painting. So there's empathy in aesthetics. There's empathy in, in sexual and romantic relationships. There's all kinds of empathies. Mm -hmm. There's what yes. actors have. But I'm interested in therapeutic or transformative, what I call clinical empathy, but it's therapeutic empathy. Mm -hmm. And that I have defined in all my research, which has gone on, my first book is about that, from detached concern to empathy, humanizing medical practice. Mm. It, it's, it's, it systematically seems to be, from everything we've studied, engaged curiosity. Mm. Um, it seems that's what, what's different about my model mm. than positive psychology, and that's what's right. coming out with individuals with themselves too. So the yeah. word engaged is important because that's the link between empathy, compassion, and sympathy, which is that you do want to be moved by the human condition. You do want to resonate with other people. And I'll get to your question, can you learn that mm. later? Mm. It's a really good mm. question. Mm. But empathy does involve being receptive, and, and, and I think Rick would say intuitively, mm -hmm receptive to people or having an open, I'd love to hear what Rick has to say about this, but it, 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 there's an openness to resonating with other people and to feeling, if you're with a friend who's very sad, you'll be resonating with sadness. If you're with someone who's very joyful, you'll be resonating with their joy. Mm -hmm. But that's actually neither necessary or sufficient for therapeutic empathy. If you just resonate and feel like you're in the same boat with someone, 
and and that's what happens in a football game or in an election on your team that can be crowd mentality when you're just like we're in the same boat you're mad i'm mad that's sympathy um or you're feeling terrible i feel terrible for you um, and people confuse sympathy and empathy, and sympathy mm -hmm. is not transformative. It is not transformative, and doctors and nurses really get that over time. Um, that's why it's very important not to just feel sorry for people who are suffering. It doesn't help anyone, really, in my opinion. But um, empathy takes whatever those feelings are, but it channels it mm -hmm. into an act of imagination. That's why all my work is on the imagination. And that act of imagination begins with a very fundamental fact that a lot of people need to realize that don't realize, which is you don't know how other people feel. You don't know how other people feel. You don't know why people say what they do or they do what they do. Every single person is a different, distinct, subjective world. Mm -hmm. And when you really understand that, which happens for a lot of people when you have a teenager, <laughs> and you realize that you thought you knew them when they were little and you, you never really knew their mind, but when mm. they're a teenager, suddenly you realize it. Or when a relationship that's been very romantic and idealized suddenly shifts, you realize that everyone has their own mind. And doctors need to realize that they don't know how their patients feel. Even if they've had 10 women with breast cancer in their 40s that they've treated or they've had breast cancer as a woman doctor, you don't know what it means to this woman now. Mm -hmm. right. You don't know what it means. So empathy begins with humility mm -hmm. and realizing you don't know another person's mind. And that recognition that you don't know what another person thinks and feels, but you need to, to do, be effective or to, to work with them, that arouses curiosity. You want to learn more from them about what it's like. So the best thing you can say with clinical empathy is not, I know how you feel, but tell me what I'm missing. Tell me more. Mm -hmm. And um, that curiosity is, to me, engaged curiosity is the definition of, of transformative empathy. Do you think, th thank you for that, do you think... Um just touching because you talked about clinical empathy and I guess medics or uh, you know health professionals who are working with people who are unwell or ill in hospital, especially now where the, the capacity is stretched. You know there are a lot of doctors they work over working overtime, they're exhausted and so on. Um, what what are you picking up on the ground right now? I mean there have been catastrophes in the past when the healthcare system is stretched, but what happens to you know when you when you're really stressed out, you're you're you've got a lot of things going on. You've got to look at patient A and B and C. Uh, what happens to empathy then? Um, it, do you still is it sort of naturally there? And you think right, I've got the time to be engaged in in a cure in, in, with curiosity and engage in a conversation, or do you see that sort of erode when um, you know the stress levels are really really high? I, the same thing goes for leadership in business. You know, sometimes you're a great empathetic manager or leader, and then you know you haven't done your numbers, and you're like, what happened to this guy? Like he's totally he was such a nice guy. He's horrible now. Um, and you often find that when people sometimes are in mid-management, I'm grossly generalizing, and and um, they, they suddenly become people say, oh, he's become a micromanager. You know, he's always watching what I'm doing. When he was in a different role, he was so much more uh, so empathetic, caring, and so on. So the psychology and your state of stress, um, obviously, I guess that has an effect on your ability to practice empathy, right? Absolutely, and I'm sure every listener during COVID knows this just from their family relationships in the mm -hmm. home. I and mean, when we know at the worst um, moments for people are when there are moments, and this <clears> happens with people across 
the educational spectrum, domestic violence is very prevalent. Correct. I yeah. mean, I always like to say yeah. that people like the three of us are subject to domestic violence, et cetera. It's not something that should be hidden or stigmatized. People should get help for it. But we see child abuse, domestic violence and, and happening in COVID. But in, in more mild cases, I mean, I don't know a family where people haven't lost their tempers with each other during COVID mm. and at least stressed out and stopped empathizing adequately, especially parents of young children. So there's, it's almost impossible to be your best self and when your amygdala is charging. That's right. the point, the amygdala mm -hmm. charge. And that's why rousing people in political elections towards hate and anger is so, so terrible because that undermines empathy that could be there. Mm -hmm. um, but so one thing, you know, in the hospital and such that before, when you're not in a crisis, when you have time in the hospital, but you, I always teach doctors, I write a lot and, and work with people a lot about how to empathize when you're in a conflict with a patient or family. Mm. Let's say a patient, my book starts, my empathy book starts with the case of a patient who was um, refusing dialysis and was going to die in the hospital because the hospital team had to find out that her husband had just left her while she was in the hospital. And until oh. they could really listen and find out why she didn't want to continue on dialysis, they were mad at her because she was recovering from surgery and suddenly wouldn't accept dialysis. And they would have a patient die for, in their view, no reason. Mm. And so nobody could have empathy and curiosity about why she was refusing dialysis. Mm -hmm. So there's, there's many cases in where you can teach people how to cultivate curiosity during mm -hmm. crises. And I've done work for decades on that, which, mm -hmm. you know, has to do with take your own emotional temperature, mm -hmm. realize that you're in a, in a, in a, in a fight or flight mode, mm -hmm. walk away, take, this is where positive psychology, but practices like meditation, mm -hmm. or just like what I'm doing right now, <sighs> take a deep breath, you know, count. They've literally shown with nurses, mm -hmm. it's been shown empirically, that during an argument or conflict with a family in the hospital, if a nurse just literally counts to 10, her empathic curiosity can recover. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of skills you can learn, but what I do write about, and I have a paper coming out about this here in the US, is that from studying what's going on with COVID right now, I think the bigger empathy killer is when you feel like you can't really help people, when you don't have enough respirators, or when you feel like mm -hmm. people are going to be homeless like they are in some of our cities when they leave the hospital, or when you feel like you can't really do enough for people to save their lives. Mm -hmm. um, that's very um, you know, hard for physicians and nurses. Right. And what, what our safety net hospital is being stretched so thin, and we do have a high level of burnout, but this is really important. You see just as high or higher level of burnout in doctors that don't have particularly high levels of empathy. Mm. So I always like to ask people, what field of medicine do you think has the lowest level of burnout? Mm. And I don't know if you guys would guess, if you want to take a guess or your readers want to think, who do you think has the lowest level of burnout in all of med medical care? That's a great question. I, 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 I'm, let's go on. No, you go first. I mean, I would guess someone who has a lot of patient interaction and <clears throat> able to have those deep relationships. So with some kind of long-term care, would be my guess. Yeah. Ask, do you have a guess? Yeah, yeah I, I would. I would tend to agree. I was gonna say. Um, I was gonna say GPs, um, but I, I may be wrong. GPs here are like your local doctor, like your general practitioner. Um, but actually, I might be wrong. I, why I said that is because um, they're quite hands off, and so they're very tr kind of transactional. Um, 
but I, I don't know. But I, you might be right about the the increased level of interaction and engagement, like like unfortunately a hospice even to some extent. Um, I don't you know. You guys are too smart. You got it. Between the two of you, you nailed it. Really? You just totally nailed it. Hospice and palliative care Interesting. are the doctors who have the highest um, level of satisfaction, the lowest levels of burnout. And it's the opposite of what I was taught when I was mm. in medical school, which is that you have to be detached. Otherwise, suffering and dying mm. will overwhelm you. And hospice di are dying patients and palliative care are suffering patients. But those are the fields, mm. going to Rick's point about relationships too, This, those are the fields where... Mm the doctors themselves are part of a team. So they mm -hmm. have relationships with the nurses and social workers mm -hmm. where they check in together as a team yeah. and they listen to each other's feelings. Being emotional and, empath and empathic for mm -hmm. a hospice or palliative care doctor is seen as being better at your job. Whereas mm. for a surgeon, it's seen worse. To, see, yeah, and yeah. they're very great empathic surgeons, but mm -hmm. depends on which, 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 you know, actual department and hospital you're at, whether you're, you're praised for it or criticized mm -hmm. for it. But at hospice and, and palliative care doctors, it is more relational. Exactly. Interesting. So, how, how, sorry, I have one question. Yeah, yeah, how, yeah, do yeah. You, how do you deal with a situation where you feel that the person you're interfacing with is not empathetic, but you expect that they should be in the role that they're in? What do, what do you do then? Well, give me the setting. Is it your personal life, like your family? Is it your... Um, business relationship and who's who's up and who's down who's the boss and who's um it, it power matters a lot and and type of relationship matters a lot what i would do i would i would use a clinical example because we're talking about you know that space okay. Okay. let's imagine you have a doctor and you're already unwell you're lying there you're feeling crap and then of course you have someone who's very matter of fact going bang 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 almost giving you a diagnosis which for you is like you know the devil coming down and giving you the, the the verdict on your life and sort of really clinical and and um detached detached from 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 you how, how would you how does a patient respond to that what do they what do you think at that point you think oh my god awful what an awful person the healthcare system's ruined doctors are awful they're all bad what what do you think about at that point and how do you deal with that situation well i'll say some things i think but i think both of you will have insights about this I happen to think, <laughs> deep ones. So I'll just say that um, <clears throat> I'm going to the research a little bit just to inform your readers that yeah. this is really interesting. The research shows mm -hmm. that if you give a difficult diagnosis to a patient in a very professional and respectful but detached manner, mm -hmm. let's say a serious cancer diagnosis, yeah. that patient will be so anxious hearing that difficult information that it'll be very disorganizing, anxiety, and it'll take them quite a while to be able to cope with the information and make treatment decisions and seek out, you know, support groups and treatment and all of that. But this has been empirically demonstrated that if the doctor is actually empathically engaged, and these are videotapes and really empirically studied things, then the patient will become, they'll be very They'll still be anxious, but they'll be much more able to cope with the information sooner, and they will make treatment decisions sooner. And this actually saves people's lives. That's how important empathy is. That's what my book was part of showing, mm -hmm. is that empathy really literally saves people's lives. So it's clear that when a doctor, so I think, to be specific to your example, Af, that that patient, I wish they were thinking this doctor is a bad doctor and I need a better communicator. But sadly, what that patient's probably doing is having their anxiety go you know, off the charts. Mm -hmm. And they're probably not even able to think because the doctor is 
terrifying them by not being in it with them. Mm. That's been studied over and over again that we cannot process frightening information. And this goes to why the US is doing so much worse than Germany during COVID, if you want me to talk about leadership. Mm. Um, but when there's bad news delivered by an unempathic leader, people's anxiety goes off the charts and their behavior becomes disorganized. Yep. That's what happens. We actually had Lisa Dion on one of our shows before, and she's an expert in neurobiology and, and uh, self-regulation. And she was talking that about that exactly, that if the leader that we're looking toward is not in their alignment and center and their nervous system is not grounded, then our system freaks out and we don't know where to plug into. And so when you have a president or whoever that leader is, who is all over the place and not uh, predictable or helpful or, or compassionate, then we're going to find all these places to try to plug into and create more chaos and have more deterioration of self. Uh, because, or, or, or we have to double down on our own self-regulation. We have to take care of, okay, how can I, I'm not getting what I need from my doctor right now, apparently. So what do I need? How do I need to resource myself with my loved ones, with people around me or myself? And so I think that's the self-empowered side of things as well. Is yes. Sometimes that authority figure is not going to be helpful. Yes. So then how can I respond in, in a health, helpful way for myself? Yes. I'll say something about both those points because they're great. I mean, one, so going back to the patient, I think it is important. And I honestly still get calls from different folks in my life saying, um, right, last week, very close friend, her husband, they're in their 60s, looks like he may be dealing with a prostate cancer diagnosis and there's very tough decisions to make. It's a common cancer with tough decisions, but the doctor is completely detached and inhumane mm. in their style mm. and it's driving them crazy, but they feel like he's the only good surgeon they know of in their area. What do I do? Like, I think this guy's competent. Mm. And so we were just talking about it. And how do you find, do you find other members of the team that you can ask your questions to? Do you find out if there are other physicians? But I think the way you described that example, if you were in your you know, hospital bed mm -hmm. and the doctor's talking with you, you're in a bad position to tell mm -hmm. the doctor that they need to change their attitude. <laughs> right. you know? yeah. So I think that vulnerability and the power structure has to be respected. Yes. But um, I do think that you can still make a request and say, you, you know, sort of like you do with family members, um, if there's one moment that the doctor showed some compassion or understanding or hopefully empathic curiosity, you can pick on that and say, you know, when you, when you asked me what this is like for me, it meant a lot to me because mm -hmm. I, I find that not only do I need your surgical expertise, but I need you to hear more about my side effects or, yeah. you know, so you mm. can do that way. But the best thing is to be in a more empowered position, mm. not that vulnerable. Yes. But mm. the leader thing we can talk about too, if you want. Yeah, go I, I want to go through a different doorway um, that's fascinating to me that I know you know a lot about. Um, and that is around technology. And a lot of people, we haven't talked about this yet to the audience, but a, a lot of your expertise is actually in artificial intelligence and ethics. And you've done a lot of great research and study in that as well. And so here's a question I have for you is, you know, Technology, as we know, can often create more isolation and more disconnection. And other times it can actually bring people closer together that have never had that experience before. So it's really a wide gamut of what's possible with technology. So, and I don't know if everyone has seen The Social Dilemma, the um, Netflix uh, documentary right now uh, from the engineers who actually created these social media platforms about bringing people together and then creating more polarization also. This is what's been happening. So that's what I want to ask you about, uh, Jody. is how do you see technology and its ability to actually help us deal with loss and isolation? And then 
how can it also hurt? Mm. Well, first of all, I didn't see the social dilemma yet. I want to, um, but I will say one thing historically, and this comes from an historian at Yale. This is not my own research at all. And I'm, I wish I could think of his name, but he's written a book about this. But um, it's really important to realize what, the idea that this, the, the social networking and you know Facebook and other services, we thought, you know, <laughs> we seem to have been very naive a couple of decades ago when we said, this will unite the world and bring people together across differences because we actually had plenty of historical lessons that just the opposite happens. And he makes mm -hmm. the argument that the telegram basically triggered World War I mm -hmm. and that, that television and phone usage triggered World War II. And basically his arguments, which are really incredibly interesting, are widespread technological abilities to connect actually can worsen tribalism because then people can find more and more people that are going to see the world just their way yeah. and not whereas like in your community in your neighborhood when you have to just be on foot or take the bus go to the grocery store you meet people who are very different from yourselves but that segmentation i mean this idea that we'll just suddenly be really empathically curious about people across difference the technology alone doesn't build that muscle mm -hmm. and that we need to build that muscle in the kind of ways we're talking about Mm. So um, that was really interesting. So there's a naivete in thinking that if we just have more connectivity, we'll have more understanding across difference. Mm. Um, but I think that the, um, yeah, I think that, that we need to build that muscle the same way we did. What we need to do locally and what we, what we need to do with global networks is the same exact thing, mm. which is really, first of all, understand that we are victims of our own imaginations mm. that we think we know why people you know all the fighting <clears throat> we do with other people there's a very famous example in a stephen covey book seven habits of um highly effective people where he says he's on the subway in new york on a sunday morning um enjoying a moment of quiet it can be quiet on the subway on a sunday morning <laughs> and a man comes on the train very famous story with his children he has three children with him and they're incredibly badly behaved. They're, they're not only making tons of noise, but they kind of rip the, the book off out of his lap and they bother wow. everybody. And he looks at this man and thinks this is a terrible person and maybe from a different ethnic group than him. Mm. And he thinks what kind of people, these people don't know how to raise their children or whatever. And um, anyway, he winds up somehow saying something to the man like, could you please keep your children quiet? And the man says, oh, I, I'm, I'm so sorry. He looks very distracted. He said, I didn't even realize what was going on, he said, yeah, we just came from the hospital about an hour ago, their mom just died. Mm. Mm. And um, everything shifts. Mm. And basically that's why, you know, the, he, that is why empathic curiosity and the beginning of empathic curiosity, this is why it's easy to cultivate. You ask, can you become more empathic? Um, Af asked that a while ago. It's just a very simple thing to realize that you do have a view of other people. You actually think you know why they're doing what they're doing. Mm -hmm. You, we, we make assumptions about people all the time. Mm -hmm. And as soon as you start to teach people, usually it happens through a personal loss, like they go through a divorce or they have a, a problem with their teenage kid. And during COVID, you know, you, you realize it's not as easy to get along with people or you don't do as well as a manager at work as you hope to do. Mm. You know, you come up against a stark realization that you thought you understood other people and that you are, you become radically, um, get radical humility and mm. realize that, you know, no matter how smart you are, 
You don't know why someone's saying mm -hmm. or doing what they are. Mm -hmm. And when you realize that and you become genuinely curious, empathically curious, that's when social networking becomes different because you want to mm -hmm. learn about people different from yourself. So there's great technology then. Like I'm involved in the virtual reality. It's an international mm -hmm. community um, sponsored by the Red Cross and the UN using augmented and virtual reality to help you get inside the world of other people. So for example, mm -hmm. trafficking, there's an augmented reality video where you can go to certain countries and go on certain corners and or even here in Oakland and see where people have been trafficked. Mm -hmm. Or you can have, um, there's a famous um, virtual reality um, uh, film called Clouds Over Sidra, which many of us have seen, the New York Times sent it to many people, where um, you're inside the life of a girl in a refugee camp mm -hmm. and seeing what her life is like from the inside out. Mm -hmm. But there's wonderful uses of technology that are sparked by curiosity. Mm -hmm. um, people crossing the border and how terrible mm -hmm. and severe the border crossing is in the southern mm -hmm. border in the U.S. Or what it's like, my favorite, and it's a terrible thing to experience, but it's the most effective, what it's like to be in solitary confinement which is a kind of torture wow. that still yeah. goes on in the United States. So mm. all of these things are using technology to help people get inside the world of someone who they don't know what that world is like. Mm. Mm. I think you touched on a very important one. I was going to raise AR, VR and gaming, actually another, another one, which is gaming. Uh, when you blend gaming and the gamification advantages with AR, VR, augmented or virtual reality, you for me you know i'm i have a deep imagination a wild one at that i'm sure we all do a little bit and i too i can think catastrophically i mean i can think of catast uh, cat uh, catastrophes but i'm not a negative guy I'm a, I'm a super sort of realist optimist but i do think i always think to myself well actually my imagination i want to try and hold on to my imagination i don't want to lose it because it's it's becoming scarce because you've fed so much nonsense from all of these channels that keep coming at you the social media and so on and so forth and so I haven't done it yet, but I do think this is something to be debated and discussed where maybe um, virtual reality when 5G kicks in properly and a bit of augmented reality on top with gamification will allow human beings, in this case I'm giving my example, to try and um, think of a situation like I haven't seen the, the, the movie around the young, young child in um, I, I would like to, where you, you can build context and empathy around all sorts of people in your life. You know, so when you have a conflict, where does, where does conflict really come from when you, you actually turn off the empathy? Uh, volume and you're like well this this person's horrible because you you said the amygdala's charged up so I you know I'm in fight or flight mode I'm not even thinking about whether I want to build a relationship with you or anyone for that matter and I think the AR VR could be a really good thing for the next generation I do think we are more able at this generation I mean I'm probably the last um, in my early 40s the last one of those I was discussing it with my wife the other day but I think the younger generation because they're so buried in the mobile phone I'm not sure how how much empathy they they're actually channeling outside of the the text messaging and the instagram or the TikTok, and um i wonder whether the ar vr is going to be their route to building empathy when they eventually do meet someone face to face i, do, I don't know but i feel that's the way forward and that's that's the goodness of technology right you just covered so many things that i'm interested in like i love it but i just want to say a couple things I just want to, because it's COVID and I know a lot of the viewers are dealing with hard things, all of us are, I want to say one thing about you bring up catastrophic um, emotions or thoughts because all my work is about that. My scholarship and why I'm a full professor at Berkeley and all of that is based yeah. on 
uh, a model I have of concretized emotions or beliefs about the future, the unconscious imagination can make us catastrophic. So my mm. book on empathy begins with this catastrophic thinking that makes people want to die or lose their life or give up during COVID. Mm. There's so much catastrophic thinking in COVID. You know, we'll never get out of this or things will never be the same. There's so much catastrophic thinking about climate change. I mean, climate change is real. It's so serious. I'm living in California where we've had 30 days of smoke and can't even breathe the air. We must be, catastrophic thinking is actually a defense against action, my work has shown. Mm -hmm. so, so that's why all my work, that's why my model of empathy is about the imagination, engage curiosity, because it's specifically meant to, to be a way to dissect and move beyond catastrophic thinking. Because we all have unconscious catastrophic thinking. And what we need, I love the way you describe yourself. I would describe myself similarly, which is my mind can be very catastrophic, but I've learned through empathic curiosity with myself. Right. Challenge it, and it doesn't go away, but it doesn't get in the way of my actions. I'm mm -hmm. still going to take positive actions. Anyway, so that's what I think about all that. And then when you bring up the imagination and the use of, we talked about VR and AR can help the imagination. Mm -hmm. The last thing you said is about this generation, and I, I have different views of it. I think that they're they're an interesting. We know they're anxious. We know we've seen from um, gen, um, generation uh, Gene Twinge's work has shown that there's more anxiety in this generation because of less face-to-face -face contact, mm. and of course, COVID's made that worse. But I'm not sure that they're less empathic. I think that that needs to be studied, and how empathy is shown, people show it differently. People, some people are very demonstrative, some people are very reserved, but it doesn't mean that they're not able to be curious about other people's lives and be moved by other people's mm. experiences. Mm. With you, with you. You know, as we're wrapping up the last few minutes of our show here, what are some of your practical takeaways uh, that uh, can benefit our audience right now, just for those who are dealing with loss and trauma right now in whatever state they're dealing that in? Um, what are some of the couple, you know, basic takeaways that you think really make the difference in helping them self-regulate and helping them get a little more space, a little more connection? Uh, what have you found to be uh, the most useful? Well, first of all, I do think some of those practices that get the learning to deal with your own amygdala <laughs> that you all described. Get to know your like, amygdala. <laughs> yes. It sounds like your show has covered that a lot or will cover it a lot. Mm -hmm. But, you know, that's where the positive psychology movement, even though I'm bringing curiosity into the picture because compassion practices are not based on that, mm -hmm. sympathy practices are not based on that. There's something I'm adding extra about mm -hmm curiosity, mm -hmm. but the foundation of the compassion and other meditation-based movements is good because mm -hmm. learning to get your embodied self <clears throat> into a state through meditation or exercise mm -hmm. or music, people under, underestimate the value of listening to music, I think, yeah. Or, yeah. or making music or movement or dance. Mm -hmm. I do like free dance in my living room, you know, but um, doing, I mean, I mean, I would rather do it with other people, but this is during COVID. Um, <laughs> I think finding ways of um, getting into your right brain, basically, mm -hmm. getting out of your left brain. We have, we have a wonderful book, A Stroke of Insight, by a neuroscientist who, when she actually was go having a stroke, so her left brain, which was always going, mm -hmm. the chatter had to calm down a little bit. Her right brain took over, and she felt this oceanic sense of love. Um, 
so we have all of that in us. I mean, that's why a lot of people, that's what the psychedelic movement with end of mm. life is looking at. There's mm. so many different movements that are trying to get people to shift from their left to right brain. Mm -hmm. So anything that gets you in your right brain more is going to help soothe you, which mm. is what meditation and other things are trying to do. Just getting into a state of just being and feeling the fullness of being in the moment. So I'm trying to do that more myself during this moment to <laughs> take a breath. So that's all good practice. And, and it can be gardening. It can be humor. I find a lot with laughter, mm. with just joking. I mean, watch comedy. Listen yeah. to comedy. Yeah. Don't just watch the news. Um, so that stuff's good. <clears throat> but then this deeper practice that's more transformative, that's a good coping practice. And with that, though, is the transformative use of curiosity. And that's where realizing, this is quick, but you're not a one-person psychology. No one is a one-person psychology. Every person is at least a two- or three-person psychology. That's what mm -hmm. I teach. So we have different parts of ourselves within our head from our earliest childhood. Mm -hmm. And that's where you talk about the inner critic, Rick, um, but that inner critic is another part of yourself. So basically, be curious, like my... Um, the person I interviewed who had finally realized in a 12-step program that she was treating herself with such pressure and expecting such perfectionism from herself. So I think getting into a practice of being curious about what kind of pressure are you putting yourself under mm -hmm. why, and, or catastrophic thinking, how do I know? that things are gonna be so awful. I mean, and not being critical of yourself for being catastrophic. You don't wanna, it's just like with food habits. If you are eating foods that you think are bad for you, being critical of yourself for it will make it worse. But if you can be gentle and loving and saying, okay, I need this cake right now. Let's wake up tomorrow and be curious. What, what made me want the cake then? Oh, I felt a little bit lonely. Well, maybe I can call my friend. Or, mm -hmm. But anyway, the deep curiosity, and some people use journaling to do that. Mm -hmm. um, some people use just talking to a friend to do that. Mm -hmm. But I think that it's a, a mixture of um, not self-indulgence, mm -hmm. but self-care that we all know, you know, getting to right brain, getting to the creative parts of ourselves, but then being curious about mm. what we think we know about ourselves. And just simply a very simple thing is whatever you've been doing that's not working, that's the, I do the same things all the time. And sometimes I have to force myself to go out of my comfort zone and mix it up. So yeah. if I've been really being a loner a lot, I work a lot and get into my, make sure I do reach out to someone, even if I don't mm. really feel like I need it. And if I've been mm. very social and on social media a lot, make sure I take a quiet walk by myself or with mm. my dog. So mm. do the thing you haven't been doing and mix it up. Mm. One last little micro point here is I love what you're saying about the self-care practices and the different paying attention to your diet, exercise, all those things are so critical. What about media diet? And here's what I want to ask you about really quick is I just, I mean, it's pretty obvious that the media can often make its money off of catastrophizing events and get us all hooked in, into the Fear next episode. Fear is addictive. Fear is super addictive and the media knows that. It's been peddling it for a long time in mm. general. So how do you balance staying informed but not being overwhelmed by the fear of, you know, what's on your television. Well, I'm sure both of you will have good advice about this too, mm -hmm. but I think that um, it feels really important right now to, um, to know what's going on, but to limit the amount of time mm -hmm. I take in news and people will come up with different amounts. But for me, there's gotta be a good part of the day. That's in my, where I have real 
impact and connection. So I'm a teacher. I mean, my main job, even though I write, I'm a Berkeley professor, which means I'm teaching and mentoring every day. Mm-hmm. And I'm listening to young people and I'm doing a really concrete job every day. And then I'm with my family. I have a teenage son. So, I mean, I'm dealing with other people. I'm dealing with my dog. So just to have a lot of relationships like that. But when I've had times where I've been more alone, it might be phone calls to other people. Um, or, you know, I mean, Zoom can be good. If you, I, I Zoom with my elderly mom who's living alone. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's really, that's where I'm thrilled that we have that connection. Um, Mm -hmm. but, uh, I think that the other thing, just to be really honest is I have an hour of media night, however late of an ongoing TV series that's compelling. Mm -hmm. And some of them are high adrenaline. Some of them involve, uh, (laughs) I won't, I don't know. I, you know, I'm in the one right now that, um, um, is international money heist. Uh Um, Mm -hmm. but you know, it's, it's not, I mean, sometimes it's comedy and it's really kind of heartwarming. This one is not heartwarming, but it's really compelling. <laughs> but somehow the, the adrenaline of that makes all the news real things fade away. Yeah. Um, but we all, or, you know, we all need something, but I would limit my diet of things that are both frightening and that I'm impotent to do anything about. By the mm-hmm. way, you are, you can vote. I am going to tell everybody in the U.S., this is the most important election of our lifetime. I hope mm-hmm. everyone votes. I mean, there's, and, and don't feel like my vote won't count because of all the fears about that. It's really important to do everything you can to vote. Mm-hmm. I, that's my plug. I agree hundred percent that we have to participate in a democracy or otherwise we have no right to complain. So mm-hmm. it's for everyone to participate and, and use your voice. And this is one of the most important and direct ways to use your voice. So mm-hmm. I second that hundred percent. Um, we are running out of time. Jody, thank you so much for sharing some excerpts of your upcoming book, Remaking the Self in the Wake of Loss, your amazing expertise in all these different domains around empathy, technology, and what it takes to really be a whole and integrated human being. <laughs> yeah. And I just want to, I just want to add, I think, you know, being very accessible down to earth and human about the whole thing, which sounds a little bit funny, but, uh, you know, we, there are all sorts of characters out there who are not as, as human and, um, you know, empathetic towards what we're doing. So it's been an absolute honor having you here. We will, we will want to have you back when you release the book because um, it's not Here's released, of course. weird. I'm showing you guys my dog. Oh, look at his eyes. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Because when you said how human I was, my dog licked my elbow. Ah, <laughs> there said, we go. Human, humans aren't the only good things. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Jody, how, how can people find out about you? Where should they go to Jody learn about JodyHalpern.com. Mm-hmm. Excellent. That's so Excellent. J-O-D-I-H-A-L-P-E-R-N. Dot com. Excellent. And we'll be, and we'll have Jody's profile on our, on our website as well, right? On the speakers community page. So if you want to yes, go on that yes. page, we'll update all of her LinkedIn profiles and, and stuff like that. So you can access I, The only thing I have is jodyhalpin.com. I don't do LinkedIn, mm-hmm. Facebook. Okay. I do no social media, but I have because of my workload, but sure. I'm on jodyhalpin.com. Excellent. Sure. Cool. Well, thank you so much for your participation and engagement today. Fantastic. We'd love to have you back. Um, and then I also just want to give a little plug for next week. Uh, we have one of the most brilliant designers I've ever met. And I know personally, uh, Brian Collins, the CEC, he is actually the CEO of uh, Collins and he's the, we're going to talk about design and the future that we are building. And just like what you talked about, Jody, what's the language that we don't even have yet for this new world. And did you know right? that design thinking, the first step in design thinking is empathy. 
Oh, cool. So there's Very a total cool. link. But I want to thank Rick and Aff. Mm -hmm. I tell anyone who has the great opportunity to be on this show that it was just an amingzing experience. It's wonderful. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank very, very kind of you. Thank you. All Have right. a wonderful, wonderful evening, everyone. Thank you very much, and namaste. Namaste. Thank you. Take care.